text this morning is Ephesians chapter 2, verses 4 through 9. It begins with two small but mighty words. But God. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And he raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace have you been saved through faith, By grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no man may boast. Lord, we've spent three weeks probing the darkness. We've spent three weeks discussing what it is that we are by nature and how we stand before a holy God and how hopeless our situation is if left to ourselves. And now, O Lord, a people sitting in darkness has seen a great light. Come and lighten our eyes, our master and our king. Well, I would like to direct your attention this morning to the the verses that we just read from Ephesians chapter 2. And by way of reminder, just let me review where we've been for the last three weeks. In the first three verses of Ephesians 2, we learn three great facts about ourselves before we came to Christ and about unconverted men and women in general. We learned, first of all, that we were spiritually dead, dead in trespasses and sins, meaning that our spirit, the part of us that was designed to relate to God and to draw life from God, was utterly lifeless and utterly unresponsive. God was present. God was all around the dead soul in much the same way as hundreds and hundreds of Radio and TV signals are present in this room right now, but we are not aware of them. We cannot sense them. We cannot draw information from them. We lack the equipment and the ability to access them. We are dead to them. And they may as well not exist right now for our purposes. So it is with the dead soul and God, who is the only possible source of the soul's light and life. We learn second of all that we were slaves of the devil, the wicked spirit who rules this present darkness. But we're not unwilling slaves, we're willing slaves. Some people understand that they are servants of the devil and they continue in his service knowingly and voluntarily. Others don't realize it, They are simply pursuing their corrupted fleshly passions, and in so doing, they make themselves slaves of the devil, willing servants of the devil, but they don't know that that's what they are doing. 
Nevertheless, when you tell them to continue to consider becoming servants of the Most High God, you find that they don't want to. However miserable and oppressed they are as the devil's servants, they still prefer that servitude to the freedom that they might receive as servants of Christ. This is the verdict, the Apostle John says in John 1. Light has come into the world, but men prefer darkness because their deeds are evil. They like it so, as much as they like anything at all. And then thirdly, we learn that we are by nature children of wrath. Children of the devil, Jesus says. They are on the wrong side of a holy God. They have aroused his holy, relentless, and judicial anger, and there's nothing that they can do to appease that wrath. They can't just say they're sorry. And even if they could straighten out and do better in the future, that wouldn't cause the wrath of God to cool one bit for everything that they had already done in the past. Once God's wrath is aroused, it must be poured out. It must be poured out on someone, either on the child of wrath or else on an approved substitute. And since the only approved substitute is God, the Son of God, then they're in a very bad way because they're dead to Him, they're held in bondage by His bitterest enemy, and they're utterly unwilling and unable to break the chains imposed by their own nature. The only help from an angry God is in that God who they are trying to avoid. The situation could not be more dark. It could not be more dire. It is a situation of utter hopelessness and utter despair. To be in this situation is to be without hope and without God in the world, as Paul says a little later in this chapter in Ephesians 2.12, just a few verses from now. I wonder, do we really believe this? Here's a way to tell. Do you look at the worldlings all around us and say, oh, well, there's a, a nice lady. She's not a Christian, but she's so polite, and she seems kind. She seems well-mannered. She's tidy and clean when you go to her house. She's hardworking. She seems honest. I think that if I got to know her and was patient and built a relationship with her and invited her to church, she could possibly become a Christian. She just seems like the kind of person who could become a Christian. On the other hand, here's a man. He's surly. He's dirty. He's uneducated. He's given to fits of anger and violence. His speech is foul and filled with racist language. He's a drunk. You feel sorry for his wife. You feel sorry for his children. He's a layabout, and he won't work. What money he does have goes to himself and to his habits. And we look at him and say, would you say, I, I think it's quite unlikely that he would become a Christian. He is too far gone. You see, the truth of the matter is, if Ephesians 2, 1 through 3 is correct, and it is because it's the Word of God, the truth of the matter is that both the nice lady and the not nice man are in exactly the same position before a holy God. While they are still in their natural state, they're both dead in their trespasses and sins. They're both slaves of the devil. They're both carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and they are both children of wrath. It's just that it's more hidden in the one 
than in the other. Both are, naturally speaking, hopeless and helpless. I wonder, do you see that about yourself? Or do you think that at bottom you became a Christian because you were just a bit smarter than those who rejected Jesus? That you were just a bit more moral than those who rejected Jesus, a bit more insightful about spiritual things perhaps, or maybe even just that you were more desperate and understood your desperate situation and had the good sense to take advantage of a get-out-of-jail-free card. Do you think that there's something within you that caused you to come to Christ, something of you and your nature? I tell you on the authority of God's holy word, there was not. You were dead. You were imprisoned by the devil in the chains of your own desires and thoughts, and you were a child of wrath, and so was I. And then we come to these two tiny words, this great adversative conjunction, if you're a grammar nut, but God. But God. You could not help yourself. No other created being could help you. No man could help you. No angel could give you what was needed to live but God. You were vile and loathsome by nature, a creature fit only for wrath but God. You were not lovable but rather hateful to God but God. You were of no intrinsic value to God. He didn't need you, but God. You see, the, the fact that God paid such a tremendous price to redeem a people for his very own is not a statement about the objective worth of the people that he redeemed. It is a statement about the mind-boggling goodness of God, that he would pay such a price to redeem people he ought to have simply destroyed, to pay so much for something so worthless is foolishness in our world. But the foolishness of God is wiser than the wisdom of men. To see it as some sort of statement about our value is to destroy the sheer wonder of grace. It is to turn God from an impossibly good and kind God into a good shopper with an eye for a bargain, like some sort of cosmic episode of American Pickers. You know, he climbs into the junk barn. You ever watch that show? I don't know how those people don't get snake bit and spider bit and everything else. They climb into the junk and they pull out this thing that looks all dusty and dirty, but he alone has the knowledge to know the true value of the thing and he brings it out and he makes a, a, a bargain with the guy and then he goes home and says, look, I didn't pay that much and it's worth a whole lot. And we think that's what God thinks about us. No, it's not. No, it's not. That's the mind-boggling thing. We have no value. It is therefore a mystery of the most wonderful kind that God places any value on us at all. But he does. What has God done? Well, in a word, he has saved us. He has saved us. By grace, you have been saved. 
In the original Greek, it's a a perfect participle. It emphasizes the continuing consequences of something which happened and was completed in past time. It is the continuing consequences of God's saving action in your life while the, the action took place in the past. Paul is saying, you are a people who has been saved and will forever remain saved. And how did he do it? Well, Paul actually makes up three brand new words that didn't exist in Greek before he wrote this passage. Three words, and they're brand new verbs, and and they tell us how God saved us. And, And they all start with the prefix soon or sin in Greek, which means with. And the first one is sunezopoiesin. He made us alive together with Christ. He made us alive together with Christ. That's in verse 5. The second one is sunzai. Boy, I can't even read my own Greek. Sunzai He raised us up together with Christ. That's in verse Six. I'm going to have to work on my handwriting there. And in the third one, it's sun kathesin. He seated us together with him in the heavenly places in Christ. Now, that in Christ, super important. I want you to see something really cool here. It's, it's a behind-the-scenes look at how salvation works. Did you ever wonder how salvation works? It's like, so, so, so get, let me get this straight. A guy dies on a cross 2,000 years ago, and then he rises from the dead, and somehow that has something to do with me. How does that work? Well, here's the closest we get to an explanation. One of the early church fathers, a man named St. Gregory the Theologian, was a very important figure in the early church. He was born in about 329 in what is today southern Turkey. And St. Gregory was writing a letter, and he was explaining salvation in this letter, and we still possess this letter today. And he said something absolutely brilliant. He said, that which is not assumed is not healed. That which is not assumed is not healed. And here's what he meant by that. That Christ taking on a real human nature, assuming human form and essence, that's what the assumed means, taking it up upon himself, was absolutely necessary for humanity to be saved. You see, fallen humanity was so utterly corrupt and could not be recovered, there was only one way to save a lost people. And that was for God and the second person, for Christ, to come down and to be made somehow really and truly human. And in order to do that, he couldn't just like ghost through the world and, you know, kind of floating uh, six inches above the ground and glowing and, and, and not undergoing the normal things that human beings have to go through. No, no. He lived a fully human life under normal human conditions, under the normal pressures and temptations. His own mother and brothers at times were like, Yeah, it's time to go get Jesus. He's gone off his rocker again. He was poor. He was friendless at one point. He was betrayed by his friends. He didn't have a home for three years. He was homeless. He lived on handouts. 
whatever people gave him. Sure, he possessed great power, but he, ne- he never used it to glorify himself or to, you know, shortcut normal human life. He, he, everything he did, he did as a, a normal human being, under normal conditions and pressures and temptations, without ever acquiring our spiritual disease. That's what it would take. He, he would have to become a human being and live as a human being, but not catch the human virus. And then he must die. Now, recall in the scriptures that death is always, always described as the punishment for sin. That's one of the reasons why I had to give up any sort of notion of of God being involved in the evolutionary process, because it needs death. And the Bible doesn't have any good thing to say about death. It says that death is the result of sin, so it couldn't have been part of God's good plan for his creation. So death is the punishment for sin, so he must come down, he must live as, it, as one of us, completely and totally, and then he must die, but he was without sin. So if you're without sin, you don't die. That's the weird thing, because death is the punishment for sin. He had no sin, but he must undergo the punishment for sin. And then because death could not have any rightful hold over him, it must release him. Back to life. Holding Jesus in that grave. You ever gone to the beach with one of those giant beach balls or in the pool and you try and hold it under the water? And what happens the minute your hand slips? Up it comes. That's what death did to Jesus. Oh, we're going to beat him down. We're going to hold him down. We got him underwater. There he goes. He bounced right up. And in that resurrection, in that In that normal life, from birth to death, in walking through all that, something strange, something wonderful, something C.S. Lewis called the deep magic happened. Because he then somehow was joined to humanity at a deep level. And what was true of us became true of him. But it also worked the other way. What was true of him could then become true of us. And what is necessary for what's true of him to become true of us is for us to be in union with him. That's the way the scripture talked about it, union with Christ, united with him. The Bible often talks about us as being in Christ. Now I want you to think of being in Christ in a very straightforward way. So so one very ancient way of thinking about how to be in Christ is to think about the spiritual picture that's presented to us in the story of Noah and the flood. And it's to see Noah's ark as a kind of picture of Christ. So you think about Noah and his family. It's not raining yet, but it's getting ready to. And judgment is coming, and they all get in the ark. And they close the door. And now they're in the ark and the rains come down and the fountains burst forth from the deep and the judgment is upon them. But Noah and his family are safe in the ark. The ark is tossed around on the seas of judgment, but his family is safe in the ark. The judgment of God comes down fiercely as the rains and the floods beat against the ark. The ark was in the flood, but the flood wasn't in the ark. And therefore, everyone in the ark was safe. 
In much the same way, the Bible calls for us to hide ourselves in Christ as Noah and his family were hid in the ark. And on account of our being in Christ, whenever he does, whatever he does, he also makes us to do. So so go back to Ephesians chapter 2, and we're going to see how this works now. Jesus Christ was dead, right? He was dead, and then God raised him up. He raised him up from the dead. In Christ, we were dead in trespasses and sins, and God raised us up from the dead in him because we're in Christ, and whatever happens to him now happens to us. Christ was then raised up. This is not talking about the the raising from the grave. This refers to the the glorious ascension into heaven that's mentioned in Acts chapter 1. So so Christ comes back to life, we come to life. Christ is then raised up into the heavenlies. Guess where we go with him? We're raised up into the heavenlies, and that's just exactly what it says there in Ephesians chapter 2. We are raised up into the heavenlies with Christ. That's Ephesians 2, 6. And then what does Christ do after he ascends into heaven? He, He walks across the throne room, and he sits down at the right hand of God. He sits down, says the book of Hebrews, because his work was done. He was like, all done. It's all accomplished. We just got to sit back and watch it work now. And he sits down. And since we're in Christ, guess what happens to us? We're seated with him in the heavenlies at the right hand of God. That's also in Ephesians 2, 6. You see, you were once dead. Christ made you alive. You were once a chained prisoner in the deepest dungeon of Satan's castle. Christ raised you up to the heavenlies so that you could get a better view. You were once an object of God's wrath. Now in Christ, you are seated with him at the right hand of God. That's your salvation, Christian. Look upon it and be lost in wonder and love and praise. Think about the other passages in the Bible that talk about this. Let's just read a few of them. I won't really comment on them. But but when we understand that this is what Paul is talking about, the stuff that happened to Christ, now that we're in Christ, happens to us too. So so start with Colossians chapter 3. Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, and chapter 3. And verse 1, Paul picks up on the same theme here. If then you have been raised with Christ, what does it mean, raised with Christ? Taken up into heaven with Christ somehow? Seek the things that are above where Christ is. In other words, you're up there with him now in some way. So fix your mind on that, not on the things that are down here that are distracting. Set your minds then on things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on the things that are on earth, for you have died. When did you die? When Christ died, you have died, and now you have this life. And where is this life? Well, it's hidden in, with Christ in God. So you have this indestructible life. You're, it's going to look like you die one day. You're going to and suck your last breath in, and everybody's going, oh, she's dead. And you'll be going, ah, I 
I'm still alive. In Christ forever. You can't tell right now, but guess what's going to happen? When Christ, who is your life, appears, you will also appear with him in glory. And then he goes on to tell us how we ought to live then in light of that. Put to death then whatever's earthly in you. Sexual immorality and impurity and passion and evil desire and covetousness was is idolatry on account of these the wrath of God is coming and you've been delivered from that wrath so don't jump back in that swimming pool the wrath of God is coming on account of those things don't lie to one another oh, there's a verse we could spend a lot of time thinking about don't lie to one another seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Turn to Philippians chapter 2. Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians. So it's just one book back. Philippians chapter 2 and verse 1. Remember that whatever's true of Christ now becomes true of you. And you must live in that reality. Philippians 2 and verse 1, so if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind and having the same love and being in full accord and of one mind. Why? Because we're all in Christ and Christ is one. He's got one will, one mind, and we're all in him. So therefore, we have one will and one mind. Keep going. Having the same love, being in full accord and in one mind, do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others as more significant than yourselves. Let each one of you not only look out for his own interests, but also the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not account equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking on the form of a servant and being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. So be, you're in Christ. This is what Christ did. He came down. He humbled himself. You, you go with him. You go with him joyously. You, you think it's the greatest thing in the world to humble yourself because you're in Christ, and this is how Christ is, and it makes you happy to be with Christ and like Christ. Turn to the book of Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 12. So go back towards the back of your Bible, a few more books. If you get to James, you've gone too far. Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 through 4. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. How? By looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. And how did he run when he ran his earthly course? Well, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary and faint-hearted. Wait, Jesus did it, 
and I'm in Jesus, and it's going to happen to me if I'm in Christ. And that's a sign that I'm in Christ. That's a good thing. That's, a, that's an occasion for rejoicing. I'm on the right path. I know this makes sense to me. I'm crossways with the world. Of course they hate me. They hated him too. And I'm in Christ. Who consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted in your struggle against sin you have not yet resisted to the point of the shedding of your blood you know how Christ was tempted he wasn't tempted by an appeal to his sinful nature he was tempted by an appeal to his bodily nature satan came to him in that garden and said you can sin and you can get out of that cross. Nothing has to pierce your hands or your feet. You don't have to be beaten within an inch of your life. You don't have to be spit on. You don't have to be stabbed in the side. Just sin. Just, just do what I want you to do and you can avoid it all. And Jesus said, no. There's that great scene in, in the Passion of the Christ where he's in the garden and he's praying and Satan's tempting him and out from between Satan's feet comes that white constrictor or python or whatever it is. And Jesus is just ignoring him. He's praying in Aramaic and then he finishes and he stands up and he crushes the head of that serpent under his heel. That's Genesis chapter 3. That's the gospel in the earliest form. He said, no, I will resist the temptation to sin even unto the shedding of my own blood. And the writer to the Hebrews says, yeah, and you're in Christ. So that's how you should resist it too. Just a couple of more quick passages. Go stay in, in Hebrews 12 and, and go to verse 18. For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest. He's talking about the mountain of God on Sinai when the law of God was given and the people were just terrified. He says, you haven't come to that. You haven't come to the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them, for they could not endure the order that was given. Even if even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. But you have come, past tense, you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Where, where are you that you have all that? In Christ in the heavenlies. One, one last one, one last one. Hebrews 13, verses 5 through 14. This is how, in this wonderful letter, this call to bravery in the midst of horrible persecution, this is how the writer uh, speaks his closing words. Ephesians 13, and verse 5. Keep your life free from the love of money. Well, there's a word for us today in the modern church. 
Keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? Well, man can do an awful lot to you, can't they? But not in Christ. Not in Christ. Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Do not be led away by diverse and strange teachings, for it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by foods which have not benefited those devoted to them. We have an altar from which those who serve the tent have no right to eat. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is bought with the holy to, into the holy places by the high priest as a sacrifice for sin are burned outside of the camp. So Jesus also suffered outside of the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach that he endured. For here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. Jesus went outside of the camp. He went to the place of sacrifice. He, he went out to Golgotha, the hill on the, on, outside of the walls of Jerusalem, and he died there. Let us, it, it was a shameful death. Let us go with him outside of the camp. Let's not remain in the comfortable city of man. Let's go outside the camp, because that's where you find the gateway to the city of God, with Christ, in Christ. When you're in union with Christ, these things that are true about him in his glorified humanity are also true about you. And all of the ugly and evil and destructive things about you also become true about him. And on account of that, the wrath of God that you kindled by being what you are and thinking what you think and saying what you say and doing what you do, that wrath is poured out on his head until he drains every drop of it that's due to you. Why? Because you're in Christ. And what's true of you is now true of him. And because of that, the Christian has been given a new life, an indestructible life now, and a new victory. Now, why did God do it? That's what God did, but, but why? Well, as I said before, it, it wasn't because you're worth it. You aren't worth it, and neither am I. Lucifer was far more gracious and beautiful and powerful than you and I, but God didn't redeem him. No. The initiative and the motivation were entirely within God himself. And Paul says that there are three motives within God that moved him to do what he did. The first is mercy. Mercy. Mercy is an act. It's not just compassion or pity. It's not merely feelings. It's feelings joined with action that relieves the suffering of the sufferer. He had mercy. That's his heart. God had mercy on you. 
You couldn't even cry out and beg for mercy because you were dead. Your spiritual tongue was still, but God gave you mercy and made you alive. The second is love. The Bible talks about it in the English translation as great love. The word is actually many loves because of the many loves he had for you, that all the different kinds and nuances of love, the, the love that, that reaches into every nook and cranny of your being and transforms that and loves you. All the kinds of love there are lavished on you by God, though you were by nature a child of wrath. And thirdly is his grace, mercy, Love and grace. Grace is a kindly disposition towards you in spite of the fact that you don't deserve it. It's God moving in you to achieve what you can't do by yourself. Grace is by definition a gift. It's not wages or something that you can deserve. It's a sheer nonsensical gift. It doesn't make sense. And what is the great end for which God is laboring. What's he got? What's his goal? It's not so that we might crow about how wonderful we are. I know I keep harping on this. I, I, this this past week, I saw a commercial. I didn't even watch the whole commercial. I was so nauseated by it. It was Jennifer Lopez, and she's settling down on a couch, and she's, you know, all pleased with herself, and she's having this internal dialogue. You brought good into the world today. You're amazing. You're this, that. And I was like, you're a child of wrath. Shut up. Repent. I don't even know what the, prod, what the product was, but it was, oh, look at how wonderful I am. I, I worked so hard to bring good in the world. The world is a better place now because I'm in it. No, it's not. It, you know the difference between a cat and a dog? I think I might have told you this before, but if, if I have, you just forgive me. But, but when, you, when you take a dog and you bring it into your home and you bring the dog food, the dog looks at you and goes, Whoa, that person brought me food. He must be a god, right? But when you get a cat and you bring it in your home and you bring it food, the cat looks at the food and goes, that person brought me food. I must be a god, right? <laughs> Don't be a cat. Be a dog. Don't be a cat. The whole reason he did it, why, is so that it says here in the scripture, so that he can show forth and demonstrate his immeasurable riches and grace in Christ Jesus in the coming age to the praise of his glorious grace. God did it so that we might praise his glorious grace, so that it might be manifest to everyone, both saved and lost. He did it so that we might spend all eternity beholding him and singing with rapturous joy about the one who took pity on us and plucked us from the fire and cleansed our sin and healed our wounds and set our feet in heavenly places. John Stott tells the story in his Ephesians commentary of the head of the theological college at Cambridge where he studied. It was a place called Ridley Hall. And while John Stott was still a student, uh, the man who was the head of Ridley Hall, a man named Reverend Paul Gibson, was retiring. 
And there was apparently a tradition going back many centuries that a portrait was painted of, uh, of Dr. Gibson. And then that portrait was shown to him and then it was preserved in Ridley Hall in Cambridge. And when the portrait, when the ceremony came and the portrait was unveiled, it was apparently a masterpiece. And Dr. Gibson remarked that in future years, when people gazed upon that painting, the question they would ask was not, who was that man? The question they asked would be, who painted that portrait? And that's what God's after with you and I. You are an exhibit of God's skill. You are a trophy of His grace. For all eternity, angels will look upon you and will gasp and say, what a masterpiece. Such an artist who created such a masterpiece. We must praise Him. Father, may the words of my mouth and may the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, my rock and my redeemer, if I have said anything untrue or unhelpful, let, us, let it be forgotten. But if I have said anything true and good and right, burn it. Burn it into our hearts so that we might benefit from it forever and ever. Amen and amen.